The reading this morning is from the book of Acts and chapter 1. So if you have a Bible there, then please do crack that open to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 11. Acts chapter 1 at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let me pray for us just now. Our Father, please speak to us now as your word is preached. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you were going to take over the world, how would you do it? Your objective is nothing short of complete domination of the globe. How would you do it? Pinky and the Brain uh, is a cartoon I grew up watching. It features two genetically enhanced lab mice, one called Pinky, one called Brain. And every episode of the cartoon is another harebrained scheme where these two mice try to take over the world. In each episode, Brain devises a new plan to take over the world, which ultimately ends in failure, usually due to the impossibility of his plan, his, his own arrogance, uh, either that or Pinky's bumbling incompetence. And I think if we were to look at these verses in Acts chapter 1, at, at one level it looks like a completely ridiculous way to begin a campaign of conquering the world. If I were trying to take over the world, I would not, to think, I would not think to do it like this. There were at this stage maybe a hundred or so extremely unimpressive looking people um, who were Jesus' disciples at this point. They had no education, no money, no power, no influence. They just had a story about an executed criminal who was back from the dead. That's all they had. The only remarkable person here is Jesus and he disappears in verse 9. And yet today, 2,000 years later, that story of a crucified carpenter is doing pretty well. Christianity has spread to every continent on the planet. Christianity has been the largest sociological movement in all of history, embracing more nationalities, cultures and tongues than any other. What starts here in these verses today looks like a global church of more than a billion Christians. In the West, church attendance and so on might be declining, but that's, that's not the big picture. The majority of the church is just now in the Southern Hemisphere. You might be the only Christian in your department or your class at school, but you are part of the most pervasive and transformative movement in all of human history. 
if you're tuning in this morning and you're not a Christian, then you're faced with the enormous problem that all secular historians are faced with. Why on earth was this movement so successful? What was it that could have happened to turn these peasants into revolutionaries? So then, if, if you or I were to try and take over the world, we would not do it this way. And yet this way of Jesus establishing his rule and reign has been more fruitful than we can really comprehend. If this is how he sets things up as he begins to take over the world, how does it work? And how do we join in? I think the answer is, is both surprising and exciting. Because Jesus gets his people to do two things here. His, his people relax and his people speak. His people relax. In order to join in with what Jesus is doing here and now, the first thing the author of Acts wants us to do is to relax, seriously relax. Look at the start of verse 1. Um, Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, this is the, the second volume of Luke's work. Luke starts off Acts in a, a very similar way to how he starts his gospel. Um, flick back to Luke chapter 1 verse 3 and Luke writes there, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke writes his gospel so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. Certainty. That's what Luke wants to achieve. And through the gospel of Luke, there are different things that Luke wants Theophilus to be certain about. But back to Acts chapter 1. The way Luke starts writing Acts shows us that he has exactly the same agenda in his second volume. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is writing Acts to give Theophilus the same kind of certainty concerning what Jesus is continuing to do now that he has been raised from the dead. The question then is what kind of certainty does Luke want Theophilus to have once he's read chapter 1? 1 verses 1 to 11. He wants Theophilus to have the kind of certainty that causes him to breathe a heavy sigh of relief. The kind of certainty, the kind of truth that causes us to profoundly and deeply relax. That's what Luke wants to communicate. These first 11 verses of Acts 1 are jam-packed with reasons to trust, to rest assured, to stop fretting and to relax. We're going to fly through six reasons from these verses for us to relax then. First, first reason to relax, Jesus really is alive. See that in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke wants us to know that Jesus really is alive, that there are many proofs. We can lean our whole weight on these proofs and they will not buckle. Jesus really is alive. If you're a Christian here this morning, that won't sound particularly controversial. But I wonder if you ever have any niggling doubts. If Satan is the, the great deceiver, the best liar around, then this would be a good place for him to prod, wouldn't it? Does it ever cross your mind that actually we might have got it wrong? Does it ever feel a bit insane that we base every decision in our lives around the claim that someone was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. Luke wants you to have certainty that there are lots of proofs and to rest assured that those proofs are substantial. 
I think he would also say, well, Theophilus, don't just take my word for that there is evidence. Go and look at the evidence yourself and see if you are persuaded. And so this morning, if you feel a bit shaky about whether there is sufficient evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, do not be afraid about investigating. Do that legwork. Press in hard. It's a claim that has stood up to careful examination for millennia. If you don't know where to start, then maybe try listening back to Dom's sermon from last week. Loads of evidence for the trustworthiness of the claim that Jesus is alive. Or take a look at Luke's first volume, his gospel. The one big piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts is the witness of the apostles. The behaviour and witness of the apostles is difficult to account for if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Even in this passage, they look a bit dumb. They ask a daft question in verse 6 and they're left gopping at the clouds in verses 10 to 11. In Luke 22, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. When asked whether he knows this Jesus who's on trial, he says, Man, I do not know what you're talking about, Luke 22, 60. But then just a few, week late, few weeks later in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are hauled before the authorities for preaching and healing and their boldness knocks their accusers sideways. Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were ed- uneducated common men, they were astonished. What happened to cause these uneducated common men to have such boldness in front of crowds of people and the authorities of the day? Stephen was one of the disciples in the room when the woman came back from the empty tomb. His response then was the same of the others. Luke 24, 11 records, These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That's Stephen's response to the woman's claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. But by Acts chapter 7, Stephen is recorded as doing this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's the the first one of them to be martyred. And as he's being stoned to death, he faced his executioners, not just with boldness, but even with a calmness and joy and forgiveness. The best explanation for these radically transformed lives is that Jesus really is alive. And he really did send them his spirit. Tim Keller puts it like this. The best... The the early Christians did not believe because they wanted to believe. They didn't believe because it was an inspiring story. They believed because the evidence was so overwhelming they were forced to believe in spite of everything they actually thought. Luke wants you to relax because Jesus really is alive. Jesus really is alive. Secondly, his promises can be trusted. Look with me at verses 4 to 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus made a promise some time back that he reminds his disciples of that promise now. Isn't it interesting that Jesus reminds them of something he's already told them? He is unbelievably patient. The the words of the Lord God Almighty should stick in our minds. They should ring in our ears. But when they don't, he is pleased to remind us of them. 
forgetful friends, here is this precious promise that I gave to you. It's, it's still good. I haven't changed my mind. It will still come to pass. And of course, the, the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2. But here in chapter 1, Luke is concerned not so much with the baptism of the Spirit itself, but rather he wants to reassure us that Jesus' words can be trusted. His, his tolerance of our amnesia is limitless. He is gentle and kind and reliable. The spirit that was given uh, to the apostles was given to them so that they could preach to thousands, plant the first churches and author the New Testament. The spirit was promised to them and they received him and his help to do the task that was before them. How much more then can we trust that the spirit will help us to do what the Lord has put before us this week? Sometimes we worry, don't we, that, well, our works are not as impressive as those of the apostles, so how can I know the Spirit is really with me? But if he promised to help the apostles do this job, will he really withhold from you the help that you need this week? Of course not. When you stick your neck out and talk to non-Christian family members about Jesus, are you confident that the same Spirit is with you and will help you? The promises of Jesus can be trusted. The Spirit will help. So relax, rest assured that the promised help is as much yours as it was theirs. Jesus really is alive. His promises can be trusted. And thirdly, his father knows what he's doing. Look at verses six to eight. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. The disciples have just had 40 days of teaching from Jesus about the kingdom of God. And then they come to Jesus with this question about the kingdom of God. And the question shows they've really not understood what Jesus is saying. Calvin says on this verse that there are as many errors in the question as there are words. But the big thing they get wrong is timing. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I find these verses an enormous encouragement. There are some things we're not supposed to know. There are some things we're better off not knowing. They want the kingdom to be restored to Israel. In other words, they want to know when the Christian church would be ultimately all-powerful and successful without any credible opposition. They wanted something big and bold and unrivaled. But Jesus seems to say, yes, that may be coming, but it's not for you to know when the world will be conquered. The history of the Christian church has been spectacular and miraculous in many ways, but it has always been in the face of opposition of one kind or another. And not until Jesus comes again will the kingdom be fully restored. Do you ever worry about how successful or otherwise your evangelistic efforts are? Do you ever worry about the state of the church across the country? Jesus says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons when revival is going to come. It's my day job to help students do evangelism. And these verses have been really precious to me in recent weeks because at the moment I swing between two extremes in my thinking. Sometimes I think, well, surely COVID and lockdown is going to make people suddenly aware of their mortality. Surely people will have all kinds of existential crises and surely this will result in really fertile soil for evangelism. And then other times I think, Nobody wants to do another online thing. This is just a complete waste of time. 
Jesus says to me here, it's not for you to know. What you need to know is that our Father has a plan. So relax. Jesus really is alive. His promises can be trusted. His Father knows what he's doing. And fourthly, he's going to rule the world. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus' language here is, is rather emphatic, isn't it? He doesn't say, I need you to go and accomplish this work for me, so pull up your socks and get a move on. He just states that it's going to happen. You'll receive the Spirit, then you're going to be my witnesses in this area, and then you'll be my witnesses slightly further afield, and then you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. It's going to happen. There is no doubt. There are no ifs or buts. It is a certainty. And it's a certainty because whilst you are going to be the ones on the ground, you're not really the ones in charge. Jesus is talking about what his disciples are going to do, but really he's talking about what he is going to do. Did you spot that back in verse 1? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. The book of Acts is titled Acts or Acts of the Apostles, but it might even better be called the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus through his apostles as they are empowered with the Holy Spirit. And right at the start of the book, Jesus says what his objective is. It's world domination. He is literally going to take over the world. Not in the way that any other ruler has gone about that task before, but instead Jesus is going to take over the world by sending his people out to witness. Spirit-empowered people talking about Jesus. That's how he's going to get this done. And the book of Acts shows how that goes. We see the apostles starting off witnessing in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and they then start heading for the ends of the earth. To a fly on the wall, that claim, that direct assertion that this was going to happen might have sounded rather brash, foolish, overly optimistic. But with 2,000 years of hindsight, I think Jesus' words in verse 8 stand up pretty well. Jesus is going to take over the world. So relax. Jesus' cast iron guarantee is that at the end of human history, this is the story that it will tell. Christians will have been Jesus' witnesses to the very ends of the earth. It's happening and it will continue to happen and there is nothing that you nor I nor the greatest superpowers the world has ever known nor the devil himself can do to cause any deviation from that trajectory. So relax. Jesus has got this. Jesus really is alive. His promises can be trusted. His father knows what he's doing. He's going to rule the world. And fifthly, he has ascended. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Here in chapter 1, the, the ascension of Jesus isn't really explained or expanded upon. There, there's very little detail about where Jesus has gone or what that means. But the reason Jesus' ascension is so encouraging and such a great source of joy and strength for the disciples is that they know exactly where Jesus has gone. The context of Luke's gospel and what the apostles have to say later in Acts helps us out. Back in Luke 22, 67 to 69, when Jesus was on trial, he was asked, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
Jesus is saying that after all this is over, that's where he's going, the right hand of God. And the apostles say that again and again, through their speeches and sermons and acts, that's where they say he is. Peter on Pentecost uh, in chapter 2 of Acts says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Exalted at the right hand of God. That's how Peter describes the ascension. Jesus' ascension means that although he is no longer physically here, he is now physically at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. If you're like me, then you might think actually a greater peace would be mine if Jesus were here rather than there. But Jesus at the right hand of God is profoundly good news for us here and now. This is the place from which he rules and reigns. The right hand of God is the place of greatest honour and authority. If the Father has put Jesus there, then that means he really was who he said he was. If the Father has put him there, then it means that actually, yes, the, the pattern of ministry that Jesus laid out really is the way to exaltation and glory. If Jesus' death resulted in his resurrection and ascension, then it means our daily dying to self picking up our cross and following him will, in the end, lead to exaltation and reward. Usually Jesus is described as being seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's significant because he is sat on the throne. For Jesus to be at God's right hand means that he has taken his rightful place on the throne as the king of heaven and earth. Jesus was talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God and what happens as he ascends is that he ascends to the throne room as the king of his kingdom. That Jesus is there means we know who is in charge of the universe and what is really going on behind the scenes. So relax. That's where Jesus has gone. That's the result of him having lived the life he lived and having died the kind of death he died. Ascension exaltation, assuming his place on the throne of the universe. If Jesus is there, well, we can breathe easy. We can relax. Jesus really is alive. His promises can be trusted. His father knows what he's doing. He's going to rule the world. He has ascended. Sixthly and lastly, he will come back. Verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The big assurance of the ascension is that Jesus will come back. If it were possible to, for Jesus to ascend into heaven, then it is possible for Jesus to bring heaven to earth when he comes back again. His physical absence might give the appearance of him being uninterested in our affairs. If he's gone, does that mean that he's, he's done with us? Both the ascension and the promised return of Jesus firmly refute that idea. Jesus will return. Jesus has said that the Father has determined that there will be times and seasons. That seems to suggest that there may be times or seasons when the advance of Christ's kingdom looks more successful. There may be times or seasons where the advance of Christ's kingdom looks less successful. But when Jesus comes again, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen. An illustration that I've 
unashamedly stolen from Richard Clark. Imagine a room full of football fans watching their team in a cup final. It's an agonising watch. The game seems to go well to, uh, to begin with, but quickly any hope of glory is squashed. Uh, the rival team really dominate play. In the last few minutes, a series of errors, however, means that the clock runs out and the score is tied. Nail-biting penalties eventually result in the team of these fans winning. And they're bouncing off the walls. What has been an excruciating watch results in joy and jubilation. Their experience of watching the game was really tense. It was really up and down. It was a roller coaster. But how do these same fans feel when Match of the Day comes on later that night? Match of the Day is the BBC's football highlights programme. As they watch the game unfold there for a second time, they don't wince every time their team loses possession. They don't bat an eyelid at the other team scoring goals because they know what the end result will be. Luke wants us to embrace the Match of the Day approach to the Christian life. Relaxing because we know what is coming in the end. Jesus will come back. So we can watch as the game takes all kinds of unexpected twists and turns and, and laugh about it because we know what the final result will be. Jesus will come back and so we can relax. Jesus really is alive. His promises can be trusted. His father knows what he's doing. He's going to rule the world. He has ascended and he will come back. Six reasons then for you and I to relax this morning. Jesus seriously wants you to relax this morning. And he also invites you to speak. How is Jesus going to take over the world? Well, his people relax and his people speak. Verse 8, you will be my witnesses. That's what's going to happen. That's how Jesus is going to get things done. Two quotations here from uh, some more articulate people than me. Eugene Peterson says this, The task is not to get God to do something I think needs done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can participate in it. That's what Luke is doing here. He's saying that this is what the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is doing. So do you want to participate in it? You can't uh, make a mess of it, but, but do you want to participate in it? Leslie Newbegin writes this, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. The reason we don't witness, the reason we don't speak about Jesus is because we're worried about what to say or how to say it. But Jesus doesn't seem to be that worried here, because the success or failure of those who witness is not determined ultimately by the people on the ground, but by the king on the throne. Your evangelistic endeavours will be exactly as successful as they are supposed to be. You cannot ruin what Jesus is now doing. You can't even make a dent in what Jesus is now doing. Don't be ridiculous. You can't make a mess of it, but you can participate in it. Jesus began his earthly ministry in Luke's gospel. He's now continuing to work. And so witnesses of Jesus are really just joining in with what he is now doing. Jesus continues to work through spirit-empowered people, witnessing, in order to further and establish his rule and reign. That work of 
Jesus will go on until the gospel of Christ has reached the ends of the earth. And when it has, he will return in glory. Heaven will come down to earth and we will live with him forever in resurrected bodies on a resurrected planet earth. So do you want to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier of the kingdom of God? Do you want to witness? Well, go for it. Let me pray as we finish. Our Father, thank you that Jesus really is alive. That we can lean our whole weight on that truth. Thank you that his promises can be trusted. Thank you that you as our Father know what you are doing. The times and the seasons, the ebbing and the flowing of what we can perceive are but a limited perspective. And that you know when things will come to a completion, when the kingdom will fully be restored. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is going to rule the world. And that that mission in the last 2000 years has made so many steps forward. Thank you that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Thank you that from there he rules and reigns and is in charge of what is really going on behind the scenes. Thank you for the assurance that Jesus will come back and that we can live in the light of that truth, confident that we know what is coming in the end. Father, please help us to speak because we are so assured, so relaxed by what we see happening here. Please give us the confidence, the wisdom to speak and to join in with what the Lord Jesus is doing here and now. We pray that you might work through us for the furtherance of We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.